Hello and welcome to Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. I'm John J. Miller, Director of the Dow Journalism Program here at the college, joined today by Kevin Porteous, who is a professor of politics. You teach courses on the Constitution, and you've just given us a lecture on the Supreme Court and the Affordable Care Act and the famous case that, that went up to the Supreme Court in 2012. And in your lecture, you talked a little bit about the political context of it, and you said this, the health care law, quote, is arguably the most controversial and divisive congressional enactment since the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which of course helped give us the Civil War. Um, we've had a lot of laws in uh, more than 150 years since then, some of them doozies. We had prohibition, we had an income tax, we had Smoot-Hawley. Was it really as bad or even worse than those? When I, when I talk about the, the law being controversial and divisive in the manner of, of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, I think I, I mean in part, uh, one, what it did to the parties and the electoral landscape. I think that's the, the, chief, um, uh, the chief connection between the two. I mean, if you look at the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Kansas-Nebraska Act uh, shatters the, the Democratic Party and causes the Whig Party to disintegrate. I mean, the Whigs are utterly incapable of dealing with the reality created by the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And I think that in some respects, the, the course of the last six years, you're seeing a Republican Party that's unable to deal with the reality uh, of Obamaism generally and what it's, what it's brought in its wake, but also uh, the uh, excuse me the uh, the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act in particular and and at the same time you've seen in, in both cases massive electoral defeat for the party that enacted the bill. Um, if you think about something like the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which you mentioned, the Smoot-Hawley tariff was uh, protectionism was standard Republican orthodoxy going all the way back to the 1850s, the 1860s. It wasn't it wasn't anything new. It wasn't an, it wasn't a new departure. It wasn't something that was immediately massively unpopular with a large portion of the electorate. I mean, Hoover and the Republicans were in big trouble anyway, and the Smoot-Hawley tariff wasn't the catalyst event for that trouble per se. You also said this of the NFIB versus Sebelius case, the health care case in, in, in 2012. You said, quote, this ruling was in some ways even more infuriating to constitutional conservatives than Obergefell, and that's, of course, mm -hmm. the one that legalized same-sex marriage. Now, to a constitutional conservative, that involved the wholesale invention of a right uh, that, that they don't see in the Constitution. Why is this one worse than that? Well, I think that in the case of Obergefell, uh, conservatives kind of knew what was coming. Uh, they, they could, just like anybody else, they could count justices. Uh, we know about Kennedy's proclivities on what he considers to be personal liberty issues. Uh, you see this, for instance, in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case, uh, where he talks about the, the infinite mysteries of existence or something to that effect. And so we, we kind of knew where that was going uh, and were able to prepare for it. But, we, we, but on the other hand, it seemed for all the world to everyone. You looked at the oral arguments, you counted the justices, you did the, the sort of judicial math, and everything came up, the Affordable Care Act is going to be struck down. I think there, there was an expectation that that was going to happen. And I mentioned in my talk that it was, it was uh, I think, so prevalent that even two of the cable news networks started reading the opinion and reported that the law had been struck down when it confirmed those predilections and those assumptions. And then it turned out it wasn't the case. In other words, conservatives felt like they had the rug pulled out from under them all of a sudden when that case came out. 
I remember that. I remember watching on TV, and I remember mm -hmm. saying, the, the 30 seconds in, they had the reporter had the, the papers, and it said it's been struck down, and then yep. about two or three minutes later, it's like, oh, wait a second. We right. have to go back and, and, and correct it. Another thing I remember from that period is a lot of conservatives saying we can't look to the court for salvation on this one. They thought maybe it would get overturned, but, but they're making the point this is ultimately a political problem. Right. We need to win elections and not hope that we'll get a 5-4 majority on the Supreme Court. Is that, is that true? This ultimately is a political problem and not a legal one? I think that's right. And, and if, you, if you win the political battles for long enough, eventually the legal battles will begin to resolve themselves in your favor. I mean, I, I, I think to a hundred years ago when progressives were constantly losing their minds about conservative judges and conservative courts striking down progressive social legislation happening over and over again at the state and federal levels. But they just kept hammering away at making the political arguments, at persuading people, at building majorities, and eventually, not only were they able to get the policies enacted, they were able to put the judges in place that made sure that they weren't going anywhere. So, so I think it's, it's a mistake for conservatives to put all of their eggs in the judicial basket. It also presumes something that conservatives ought to question, and that is the idea that the courts are the ultimate word, the final expositors of the Constitution in all cases whatsoever, and that as soon as they say something, that's it. Well, a lot of people think that's true. Explain that a little bit. What, 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 what role do the other branches play in terms of interpreting the Constitution? Right. I, I think that we have to remember that, that the interpretation of the Constitution is not the special province of the court to the exclusion of every other branch. In the course of, of carrying out their constitutionally assigned functions, President and Congress are both expected to interpret the Constitution. And you can look to sources from... Uh, Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist, to Andrew Jackson, to Abraham Lincoln, who are all making the same point that, look, the, the courts are not the last word. Ultimately, in our system, the last word on everything, the authoritative interpretation of, of the Constitution, of laws, of, of uh, what we should be doing and where we should be going in, in, as a country, is in the people themselves. And so ultimately, what we need to be engaged in is a, is a political educative project, a civic education project, to get people back to constitutional government. And, and once you do that, then the other things, I think, begin to work themselves out. I have a mechanical question about how the Supreme Court works. You, you, you point out that in this case, no one joined Justice Roberts' majority opinion. I, and there's some speculation about what did he write, what did he write. I want to get to that in a second. Yeah. But tell us, what is a majority opinion? What is a minority opinion? Does it matter who signs on to what? Does it matter if it's a 5-4 ruling or a 9-0 ruling? Help okay. us sort that out. Okay. Well, the, the, uh, the size of the majority is, is useful in determining, you know, you can, if, you, if, if your opinion crosses ideological lines or if the courts are consistently giving you a similar ruling in after case after case. And, and Lincoln talks about this in his speech on the Dred Scott decision. When you get that kind of, those kinds of big majorities and consistency, then you can put a lot more faith in the soundness of that ruling. As far as the way the opinions work, once the, once the justices have decided how they're going to vote, the Chief Justice then goes about uh, assigning who's going to write the opinion, who's, uh, who's going to write, the, uh, the dissenters decide who's going to write the dissent, and, and so on. Uh, and what's really important in terms of the actual outcome of the case is the conclusions that various justices came to. That is to say, Roberts had a majority for his conclusions, uh, 
What he did not have was a majority for the reasoning behind those conclusions. So that the, uh, the Chief Justice, uh, John Roberts, concurred with the liberal justices in upholding the individual mandate. What they disagreed about vehemently was why. And so writing for the liberal justices makes the argument that the Commerce Clause is a perfectly reasonable way to justify the individual mandate. Roberts goes to great lengths to say, no, that's not correct. And he uh, develops, invents, creates this taxing power justification that somehow this is legitimate as a tax, which, as I say in my talk, is kind of amusing when you think about the fact that earlier in the opinion he'd argued, no, it's not a tax. So suddenly he's going, yes, it is. Well, it's not a tax for the purpose of this law, but somehow it is a tax for the purpose of the how they vote in the outcome. So he doesn't get anybody to join his reasoning, but he did get people to join in his results. Now, in math class, when you have a, a, a homework assignment or a, or, or, or a test, you need to get the right answer for the question, but you also need to show your work. You need to prove that you know it, right? It's, not actu it's actually not enough to get the right answer. And I, I had a lot of experience with getting math questions <laughs> wrong <laughs> growing up. But uh, you need to show your work, and that, that really matters. But the Supreme Court seems to function differently. As long as you all come to the same answer, it doesn't matter how you get there. Not, yes, in, in this case, now, it limits... The, the fact that they use different readings or different interpretations limits the value of the case precedent uh, in, in as much as, well, you know, what's, what's really the majority here? And what Roberts was, I think, was trying to do in going to the taxing power was to find a way to justify or to, to legitimize Obamacare constitutionally, the individual mandate constitutionally, without expanding Congress's commerce power. And that's something where the court haltingly and in very small steps has, has, has uh, tried to establish some limits over the course of the last 20 years. And if, uh, if Roberts were to use the commerce power as a justification for the individual mandate, it would blow the doors off of that completely. I mean, you, you, would, have, uh, you would have Ginsburg's opinion would basically be the majority one. Ginsburg based her opinion on an earlier, a World War II era case called Wickard v. Filburn. And the Wickard case basically says, look, there's no limitations on the commerce power. The federal government can do anything under guise of the commerce power. Now, a question about the culture of the Supreme Court. You note in your lecture there's some speculation that Roberts wrote the uh, minority opinion but then abandoned it mm -hmm. and then wrote this other opinion. He is the author of all kinds of things, right. apparently. I was a political reporter in Washington for many years, and it seems to me like everything leaks eventually. Right. But maybe not at the Supreme Court. Uh, there really is an element of secrecy there. How come we don't know the truth behind what happened there? Yeah, I think it's exactly what you point to. They're, they're, they're much better about uh, trying to keep a lid on, uh, on, on what they do. I mean, if you think about it, this is the only part of the federal government that you're never going to see on television. Uh, if you've ever spoken to a Supreme Court justice, I've had the opportunity to meet a couple of them over the years, and that they, you, you can ask them about, you know, what's it like to be a justice, you can ask them about judicial philosophy, but if you get, try to ask them about specifics, they're going, they're, they're going to demur, they're not going to, they're, they're not going to, to get into uh, particular cases, particular lines of cases, particular agreements or disagreements that they might have about particular issues with this, that, or the other justice. And, and there's some importance to that. There can't be the appearance that uh, someone in this position has prejudged a, a decision. And so that, I mean, that's important. Now, things have become so ideological that in many cases you kind of know where a judge is going to be. 
but at least they're not simply coming out into the open and saying, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to strike down um, any gun control legislation. Uh, you came close to that with, with William Brennan, who basically said that I'm going to strike down every death penalty statute I can possibly get my hands on. But, but short of that, uh, that's the ex really the exception and not the rule. Isn't there a kind of phoniness to that, though? It, it, it suggests that actually they're not a political body, that they're not political animals, when in fact they are, and that the mystique and the secrecy covers that up for the rest of us, and we treat them like, uh, like, like priests in a temple in their black <laughs> robes, right? I mean, and, and, that, and, and, and that empowers the court, maybe, to do some things the Constitution doesn't allow. Yeah, and that's certainly, that's certainly a problem for both liberals and conservatives, but especially for conservatives, right? If you give up government to the judiciary, you, you really don't have self-government. If you say, okay, all important questions, we're going to leave that in the hands of the judges. And yes, they, they are political branches. They're all political branches. That, that's the thing. We, we, tend to, we tend to talk about the judiciary and then the political branches, the legislature and the executive. But in their, in their sphere, the judges are as much a part of the political process as anyone. And if you want to see this, this sort of, uh, this kind of kabuki theater taken to its extreme, watch, it, watch a federal judge, particularly a Supreme Court justice or nominee in his confirmation hearings, where we all know what he thinks. And everybody in the room knows what he thinks about whatever issue it is, if it's, a, if it's an important or hot button issue. But we all have to pretend that, that he hasn't prejudged anything and he hasn't made up his mind about this, that, or the other thing. And he, he, he dodges whenever a senator asks him a question that's too pointed. And, and look, this is, all, this is all trying to get through a process that in the course of the last 30 or so years, that is to say from, from Bork to the present, has become in, insanely politicized. We can watch their confirmation hearings on TV. We can watch Congress on C-SPAN. Mm -hmm. Should we have television cameras in the Supreme Court? Oh. Uh, I don't know if I have a very strong position on that one way or the other. I think that, that at least as, uh, for a while, the novelty of it would be great. Uh, on the other hand, and this is something that, that Congress lost when they put cameras everywhere, and that's the opportunity for free discussion. Right? There, there's something about, even if, it, even if there's a transcript, even if there's a record, even if there are witnesses, there's something of not having it broadcast to the entire world. If you look at what happened with congressional committees in the 1970s, they, they brought the cameras in and, and uh, everything was exposed to the light of day. And the point was to get rid of the backroom dealing, to get rid of it, and what it did was, it didn't get rid of that dealing, it just moved it further underground. Those same negotiations still take place because those negotiations and that back and forth and the openness in discussion, that's part of the deliberative process. You can't do without it. And, and what you've done with, with sticking the cameras in there is to, is to suppress it. Now, getting back to the Affordable Care Act case, mm -hmm. I remember when the, when the ruling came down, I know I was starting to read everything I could about it to understand what really happened. And Charles Krauthammer, had a column a couple of days later after the ruling where he said, I disagree with what uh, John Roberts did, but I'm trying to understand it. And he tried to enter the mind of John Roberts and what John Roberts might be thinking in terms of his, his responsibility as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And he said, Charles Krauthammer said of Roberts that, that Roberts is uniquely entrusted with the custodianship of the court's legitimacy, reputation, and stature, and that he worried that its accumulation of power, its ability to strike down a law that Congress had enacted, would hurt its reputation and ultimately hurt American government. Yeah. What do you think of that? I've heard all kinds of speculation about uh, about what Roberts was thinking. There, there, there are reports that from various sources that he was scared, 
that the that the Obama administration strong harmed and strong armed him in some way. I, I, I'm not sure how to comment or, or what to say about um, any of them. In in um, in Krauthammer's case, I mean, I think Krauthammer's made about I in that quote has made about as good a case as you can for Roberts' decision. Right? Uh, but I, th I think that also Roberts kind of uh, trapped himself to a certain extent, getting away from from the speculation. But 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 he's trapped. In a, in a model of judicial restraint that wasn't really appropriate to that situation. And this is a problem that conservatives have because we're, conservatives are so used to activism being a problem, liberal judicial activism, that restraint is the answer. But, but I think that we need, what we need to understand is that judicial activism and judicial restraint are tools. They're like a hammer or a firearm, right? That, that, that they are as good or as bad as the person in the, situ in the, st the situation uh, that, that are involved. And so, look, I mean, we've had decades of activism. It might take some activism to undo the activism. And so what you've done by exercising restraint in this case is restrain the court to allow the Congress to do something that is manifestly unconstitutional. In your lecture, you date the modern emergence of liberal uh, judicial thought to, to 1937 and the FDR's attempt to uh, expand the court, pack the court and so on. Uh, he lost that battle. He may have won the war. But remind us what happened back then in 1937. What did FDR do? Okay. 1930s, the, the, the first years of the New Deal. Uh, the Supreme Court, led by four conservative justices and joined by one or both of the court's uh, two moderates, struck down a host of New Deal legislation, particularly the National Industrial Recovery Act. And this was a source of enormous frustration uh, to Roosevelt and his top advisors. Uh, right after the, uh, the NIRA was struck down in, in the Schechter poultry case in 1835, there's a great press conference that he gave where he is just, I mean, you can tell in the transcript that he is just spitting mad about this. We're, he says, we're going back to the horse and buggy interpretation of government and the Constitution and the Commerce Clause, and we need to, we need to have a Constitution that deals with the times, and these people are totally out of it. And so the, the, the uh, response from the Roosevelt administration was to propose expanding the size of the court to allow uh, Roosevelt to flood the Supreme Court with new justices who would be sympathetic to the New Deal. And it didn't work. Uh, it, was, it, it was enormously unpopular. Uh, it, was an, it, was, it was badly received. It, it took place at about the same time that Roosevelt tried to get rid of Democrats in, the Demo in, in, the, in Congress who were hostile to the New Deal. This was often referred to as the purge uh, during the 1938 congressional campaign. And taking those things together, people began to get the impression that Roosevelt was trying to seize control of the government. I mean, in the late 1930s, purge was a loved term. And people knew what that meant, at least had a vague idea of what it meant. They connected it very strongly to the show trials and the mass executions in Stalinist Russia that were going on at that time. And th they believed that, or, or there was the suspicion that Roosevelt was attempting to do a peaceful version of the same thing, to consolidate power in himself. It was actually, all of that taken together was the catalyst for the formation of what came to be known as the Conservative Coalition, the group of Republicans and Conservative Democrats that served to restrain or thwart uh, progressive liberal le legislation from the New Deal. Really, the, 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 the idea of a conservative coalition didn't disappear until the 80s or maybe even as late as 1994. So that, that's, that's the context. 
We have eight Supreme Court justices today. We're having this conversation in the fall of, right. of, of 2016. We don't know how the presidential election is going to turn out. Mm -hmm. We have eight Supreme Court justices. We've had a vacancy for a long time. We might have one for a long time. Right. Who knows? Is there something magical about the number nine? Can we survive with eight justices for a long time? Should we increase the number of Supreme sure. Court justices? Look at your crystal ball and tell <laughs> us a little bit about what to over, expect. Over time, uh, the Supreme Court has had as few as five and as many as ten justices, and again, proposed as many as fifteen when, when Roosevelt was, was president. There's, there's no particular reason why we can't have one more or one less, and the number of justices on the court has been something of a political football. I mean, the, the number has been increased in the past in order to give a, a president an opportunity to nominate friendly justices, and the number has been reduced as a way to pre prevent people uh, that were hostile to the, the uh, who might be hostile in the future to the, the prevailing majority to, to reduce their opportunity to be able to influence the court later on so that when somebody retired, the new president would not get a chance to replace him with somebody he found more, more favorable. Um, based on what we've seen right now, I mean, it, you know, given, given the, the general backbone of Republicans, post-2016 election, if Hillary Clinton is your next president, I find it hard to believe that the Republicans are going to stall for another four years. I just, just given the way Republicans in Washington operate, I don't see that as a realistic uh, possibility. You know, I, I'd like it to happen, but I don't think it's going to because they're going to look at it and go, okay, well, she won the election, she's entitled to her picks. Uh, and, and in the case of cabinet officials, I tend to agree with that, but I think judges are different, and I would like to see the, the Republicans be more intransigent on that matter. Last question, why are judges different? It's an advise and, and, and consent rule right. for, for, for both. I think they're different because when it comes to cabinet officials, senior executive branch officials, I think that there ought to be a presumption that the president has a, a right to put people in place of his choosing, so long as they meet minimum standards of honesty, which, uh, you know, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, minimum standards of honesty and competency that, that, that they ought to be, the president ought to be able to get his people in place, or her people as the case may be. Uh, but the judicial branch is a separate branch, and it, there shouldn't be a presumption that simply the result of the presidential election is going to determine the outcome or composition of the court. I mean, that's a separate and independent branch, and we ought not to construe it simply as an arm of the presidency. Kevin Porteous, we are out of time. Thank you very much. This concludes week three of Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. To learn more about our online courses, come to our website at online.hillsdale.edu.